Well, in our opinion, this is short. <laughs> right. <laughs> Tasting Anarchy, your wine and liberty podcast. Join Mason and Jake each week as they try new wines and discover how much government is in your drink. Hello and welcome to another episode of Tasting Anarchy. I'm your host, Jacob Lindsay, and as always, I'm joined by... Mason Joseph. And we've got a uh, a new series that we're starting this week, but it also kind of closes out the previous series. Um, and the th- massive throwback. It is a massive throwback because I think this is maybe, what, our s- second wine that we did maybe? Or maybe second or third? It was an early one. Yeah, this was, uh, I think, the second wine type. Yeah. yeah. Second think, wine, so. not like necessarily, yeah. Well... So we, we were doing a series for a long time where we were going through like the top 10 grapes. And when we got down toward the end, the last one, there, there was actually two grapes that I don't know what they are. And when I was doing research on them, I, I was like, oh, this is only stuff that's used in like big bulk wine. And it's mostly like Barefoot and um, Gallo and things like that, which if that's what you enjoy, that's what you enjoy. And that's fine. Uh, but it's it's less interesting to talk about. Mm-hmm. So I figured that we would accessible. Yeah. Well, I mean, it is, it is widely available stuff. It's at grocery stores and things like that, but it's usually the stuff that I don't buy at the grocery store. And I had a feeling that if I bought like a jug of Gallo, I would be drinking exactly a couple of sips of one glass and the rest would be gone. Like you know, the <laughs> drain and which may not be true. Uh, I could be totally biased, biasing myself just because the price point and everything. And, and I do know that people enjoy it and drink it. Uh, but I figured we'd save we'd save something like that for maybe having a guest who actually likes that kind of wine, or maybe and, like a guest, and we're together where it's like yeah yeah because I know that three glasses and it's like okay we kind of did a dent yeah because I know that like Howie Snowden and Mark Claire from our friends from the Lions of Liberty who have both been on this show when they were in college I think they drank Gallo and then and bum wine but Gallo I think was like they're considered their like higher tier. <laughs> and it, but it's full of like a lot of grapes that are grown in bulk. Some of them American hybrid grapes, and they're just alcoholic grape juice is the way that they're mostly described. And so I just didn't really want to cover those. But there was one grape type that was left on the list that I figured we'd cover. And then you and I were also talking about maybe doing a new series of wine that's available at Kroger because you and I both shop there. I don't usually mm-hmm. buy a lot of wine there, but you usually get your wine there. And yeah, I was like, I mean, you know what? Well, yeah. like, that's the thing is like it's fallen off pretty heavily that I get wine from Kroger. Um, but that's mainly just kind of the way things have shook out um, with my parents getting me Groupons for like my birthday or Christmas or something like that. And just, yeah. you know, it's like 18 to 20 bottles. So, yeah. Well, kind of what I figured was that whatever selections at Kroger is probably pretty close to whatever people's local grocery stores have mm-hmm. and also kroger isn't that the largest chain grocery chain in the country i think it's the largest chain but walmart is the largest um grocery provider so we could also do okay. a walmart series too because yeah, yeah, actually, walmart be actually t- surprisingly doesn't have that bad of a wine selection in the price point availability cross-section okay. you know you have to you have to take that kind of like cross section, especially for people who don't have access to like a total wine or like a kind of like a dedicated wine store. Um, yeah. Mainly because as you, both you and I know, it's very hard for distribution in a lot of places. If like 
you don't have a distributor there. Like it's kind of hard to become the, the, the one there. Right. Exactly. Yeah. And I, and I think that, um, well, let, let's go ahead and just get into what the grape is. I've been teasing it. I haven't said what it is yet, but it's mm-hmm. one of your favorite grape varieties. It is. Um, or it was when we first started the show. Yeah. Why don't you go ahead and introduce it? It is Pinot Grigio. So this is the receptionist. I believe we both had the 2018. That's um, correct. I didn't catch if it was 12.5 or 12% alcohol by volume. It's a um, 12.5% yeah. alcohol by volume. Yeah, so this is a, a Italian Pinot Grigio. Um, that's actually kind of the main reason I picked it up. Our, our goal with this series was to be under twenty dollars. Um, Kroger does this thing, and it is a little frustrating where they go. It's on sale, and it's on sale for the price you could pretty much buy it everywhere else. Yeah, so it was yeah. like you know, sale from nineteen ninety nine to twelve ninety nine, which is, I mean, twelve ninety nine wasn't bad. Um, it's very very light in color it's almost green like in maybe it's just kind of the way i see it in the bottle but like it's it's like a very green color um the smell like to me it was just like a light smell kind of white wine-ish it it didn't really pop i probably should have chilled this a little bit i drank it at room temperature um, which is probably actually closer how they would serve it in italy um it's a little cool in my house right now so it's probably you know maybe 70 degrees uh, when I was drinking it. Um, taste, I mean, like, I would just say light. Like, it it, it had, at least when I opened mine, it had some pretty upfront acidity. Um, you know, it, it's one of those ones where, like, and this is something that I will say, is, like, it did, like, I'm reading a description of a 2016 one, and that, grass with supple and they're talking about like the body like i felt the body was kind of silky which is weird for a white wine to me it wasn't very viscous like i felt i played kind of well on the tongue um but again very very light and this is kind of not necessarily what i would expect from italian white wines necessarily but it's like just inoffensive is is the best way to describe it that, that is a good that is a good way to describe it. I'll give you a little bit more details on the wine. So the, the wine is, uh, as you said, it's the reception. Um, it is a product of Italy. It is from uh, Friuli, which is in uh, the northeasternmost part of Italy. So I think it borders Croatia and probably Austria. I didn't look at the map, but it's it's uh, or no, I guess it would be Slovenia. Yeah. And uh, I Hang think on, I'll show. look it up in a second. Okay. Um, but yeah, most Northern. Now, one thing that's interesting about this wine, and for people who have been listening to the show for a long time, we did get into this briefly, but didn't give uh, a whole lot of details on it. Um, the EU is the controller, basically, of uh, wines. What we would have it would be the uh, AOC, the American, or the AVA, the American Viticulture uh, Association. We divide up our regions that way. In the EU, the EU does sort of grant these, but the nations have control over over how those are split up. And in Italy, it's uh, DOC, DOCG, and ITG, and then unclassified. Uh, there's also uh, Superior, Classico, uh, Mili Smanto, and Reserva. Uh, I'm reading these off a list. I, mm-hmm. I'm not that smart, but. Um, uh, it does have a, a D 
DOC uh, listed here, which is grave, but it doesn't have the um, the seal on it, which that I'm not sure what that's about because if this was labeled in the United States, they don't have to do that. Mm-hmm. But if uh, it was labeled in Italy, they do have to have that official label on it. Uh, or I think they had the option to put yeah, it on. Yeah, I, I don't believe this was labeled in. I believe this was probably labeled stateside. Yeah. So um, this is actually according very to the, professionally translated. Kind yeah, because because when I look at this, it doesn't have the the seal on it, but uh, it does say that the Frioli Grave DOC is an official DOC. The DOC is, um, I think, a slightly lower level than DOCG. I believe and, that's correct as well. Yeah, yeah. I'm not 100 percent sure. We'll have to we'll have to talk to somebody about it. But it, it is a it's like an official region. So I don't know if that's uh, what's going on here with this. But uh, my notes are very similar to your notes on this. Is um, look wise very clean, almost uh, clear like water, but it does have like a hint of greenish yellow. Yeah. Uh, and then I said smell. There's not a lot there, but a, like a little bit of apple blossom and maybe a little citrus. Uh, taste-wise, dry, decent acidity, uh, apple and citrus, but really not a lot else. Uh, the conclusion I put on this was um, not particularly interesting to me. It isn't bad, but it's also not particularly exciting. Very inoffensive. Uh, for the price, wouldn't wouldn't have a problem uh, sharing this with other people, but it's not really one that I would recommend. It's just not that that. Amazing. You and I have both had Pinot Grigio that's better or Pinot Grigio from other areas. Mm-hmm. And um, this one for $12.99, not bad. Yeah. This uh, would, and uh, go this ahead. would be really good. Like, I think if you made like a spritzer out of it, um, yeah. Like, gave, gave some bubbly to it or used it in, um, oh my goodness, uh, it's the fruit wine. My wife makes it all the time. Sangria. Like you can make a oh, yeah. sangria out of this with like other alcohol kind of providing it in this, like the acidity would come through, I think in this. Yeah. And, and not to be offensive to like vegetarians or anything like that, but um, I don't particularly find vegetarian dishes usually that uh, powerful in flavor. They, they, mm-hmm. Well, that's not the right way to describe it because they can be very spicy and they can be flavorful, but the flavor is usually not as um, complex. No, that's not right. Heavy, maybe is heavy. I guess hmm. would be the right way to describe about, it. Like it doesn't what about deep. I don't. Yeah, that's a good point. I'm not sure because like, and even avocado is sort of like a heavy thing. So if it's a dish with avocado, that's kind of. But I, I would say that like with a vegetarian dish, I could see this working pretty well. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and like I could, you could also this. You could also set off with sushi, um, mm-hmm. and I also think if you had paired this with some sort of dessert. Yeah, like that would be something good. Super sweet. Yeah. Um, the acidity would cut through, and I and I think that would ch- kind of change the experience. I had it yesterday, a glass kind of just by itself, really nothing else going on. Um, we were as we were discussing off air, like I was, you know, making yard decorations for Halloween all day. My wife and yeah. I were trying to get more crafty uh, this year, not from like a lack of money, uh, but more of a trying to experience yeah like for for my for our daughter we wanted to kind of 
broaden that do that sort of thing so we were having a lot of fun doing that um so i had a glass in the middle of the day and then i had a glass with dinner where i was having actually smoked chicken that i had smoked and you know just a bunch of different um kind of mexican vegetables and it was definitely like the smoked chicken i used wasn't mexican style so it was like a smoked chicken with mexican vegetables and tacos and brussels sprouts and um refried beans so all except for the refried beans all really strong flavors and they basically just blew this out of the water like you you really didn't taste a lot of the wine there i mean the acidity cut through but you know you're just not expecting a like there's unlike a lot of reds where there's a lot of acidity usually there's something else behind that and when there isn't it's really gross yeah like when a red wine is just all acid it's like this is awful whereas this was like oh it's acid but then nothing yeah. else followed it. Yeah, and it's definitely acidic because you kind of get that sort of like poor opening sweat or whatever from mm-hmm. it. Which, or I, I always get that from something very acidic. But um, yeah, it, it it is definitely there is that uh, I had it with something that I th- actually think paired fairly well. Oh yeah, uh, yeah. It was um, you know those uh, those Icelandic crackers that don't really taste like anything it's it's almost like matzah but even like less flavorful i have not had these but okay I, they have a kroger i, I, I really like them actually but even though they have no flavor yeah oh, i'm thinking of like kind of like those wine crackers sometimes there's like these ones that like basically just like eat the spit off your tongue and they don't really taste like much uh that yeah I'm, this I'm is kind of, of like that i'm thinking of sesame crackers but like okay no the, these the these are sheen uh these are like it's or maybe they're Swedish. They're they're some sort of Nordic crackers. I get the sourdough ones, but they really taste like nothing. They they don't have pretty, any particular flavor. But it, although you wouldn't like this portion of it, they're a cheese delivery device for me. Um, <laughs> and I buy I buy uh, the farmer's cheese from the Russian store, and, and we got this new one. Uh, it's just like a farmer's apricot. Uh, Victoria hates farmer's cheese, but like it's I think it's delicious. It's like. It's like less wet cottage cheese, so this is probably not helpful at all to you to wanting to try this. But it's like it's like dry cottage cheese with fruit mixed in it, and uh, <laughs> yeah, I love it. I think it's like the most delicious thing ever. And I would, I'll, I will pile this on these crackers, and and with that, and it's a very mild cheese too. So it's it's got the apricot flavor. This is very kind of mild, sour, creamy kind of taste to it. And then just like dry nothing crackers with this pretty good pairing. <laughs> yeah, I can see that. I mean, like the the cheese is going to have that fat in it, and it's the the acidity of it. I personally is kind yeah. of the way I'm picturing this in my head. Um, so I mean, like I get it. It's yeah, just- it's got the fat. It's got the the apricot as well, which which I think. Um, well, it does deaden fruit flavor a little bit when you have apricot in that because apricot is a very sweet, especially dried apricot is kind of a sweet uh, mm-hmm. fruit. And so it does kind of reduce your ability to detect high sweet, which – so, I mean, it's not – a it's but but it's not enough. It's not like a like a mango pudding or an apricot pudding. It's not – it's nothing like that. So it's not like really killing your sweet receptors. But it it is enough, I think, to kind of like – the there is like a, a mild minerality to it and uh i think also the apricot kind of offsets the citrus but allows a lot of the apple to come through and and so as far as a wine goes i don't really think it's that exciting um but 
it's not it's not bad at all. It's just it's just and for twelve ninety nine, if you if you're gonna be you know providing something like this for dinner, something you know very light fare like you were saying sushi is a good example of this a very light sushi, um, this might be a good pairing for it. Yeah, so, like I, I don't disagree with the logic behind it, but okay, it, this is one of those ones like for you and me, I, I'm not. I'm not disappointed, sad, or frustrated by this choice. Yeah, yeah, me neither. I, I, I'm, I'm actually very happy with it. I probably wouldn't get it again, yeah. um, but it's also like the other thing too about this is for me, I know this is not particularly good. I think um, well, I tend to. Per- that's where I, I was I, going with that. Is like yeah. as somebody who likes Pinot Grigio, yeah, I would not particularly be confident in serving this. Okay, because it is too it's too much of a ghost. There's just nothing. Okay, yeah. Going yeah. On. So like, if you, if you come over to my house and I'm like, it was so like, I mean, if you come over and I'm serving you a white wine, I'm serving you white wine intentionally. Like you yeah. and me, like I, if I'm giving you a white wine to drink at my house, it's because I'm trying to say like, this is a white wine that is worthwhile. I don't have enough people over to my house often enough. And I know you don't either where I need to serve low end wine. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like it, yeah, if yeah. I'm going to serve a wine and, and half the time, like no one else drinks wine when they come over to my house. Like, yeah, I run into the same thing. Yeah, uh, I can, yeah, I can, Cause it's usually it's the libertarians and, and with the libertarians, either they bring their own drinks or mm-hmm. they just are going to drink the beer that I bring or, yeah. you know, um, the and, beer that you have. So like, that's the thing is like, if you're not here, like my wife will have some wine, but yeah. you know, if I'm going to bust out the heavy reds, like you and I will drink a lot, it, it just never ends up working out. So like, I'm, I get what you're saying, but like, even then, like I, I would prefer to serve the, uh, silver leaf, like Riesling or Pinot Grigio that we had that was like grassy. And like, yeah, I like that. Yeah. Well, that, that's actually, that's interesting. Cause that's exactly what I was going to say is I think I prefer the more, uh, I think they call it herbiscus. The mm-hmm. more the more vegetable flavorings, which is weird because I don't actually prefer vegetable flavors in general, but the the grassiness or bell pepper, um, these kind of like vegetation type flavors in wine, I really appreciate. Uh, and I think with Pinot Grigio, you can get that. I tend to get that more from something like Sauvignon Blanc. Yeah. Um, but it's, it's a- but it's different. It's, you know, it's a different. And also, as we said, this is going to be a series. We're going to be trying Pinot Grigio from multiple regions that you can get at Kroger because I did count them up while I was there. And they do have at least four regions um, that we can get from. And uh, Italy is one of the most famous for Pinot Grigio. But I think maybe for our last one, we should revisit Italy. And do either a higher price point or do a little research online and see what's recommended. Yeah, I think I think if we're going back, what we need to find is one with a um, a label, like a doc label. Um, yeah, or DSCG, one of one of the yeah, higher DSCG or something yeah. like that. We might have to break the price point um, for the purpose of it, um, just to kind of see. But like, that's the thing is like. I think one of the other problems that you and I have is we are generally bold flavor people. That's true. Like, you know, I like Cab Franc. 
because especially from Virginia because it is so unrefined yeah. and so right in your face and just kind of out there. And I like a lot of the Pinot Grigios, like you were saying, that are kind of uh, have the not necessarily the vegetable flavor in the whites, but I like the green apple, the citrus, the acidity, like yeah. the more acidic fruit flavors um, that aren't just continual red fruit. And that's one of the things I really like about uh, Pina as a red wine is it has a blueberry flavor. And you're like, you know, it's not like, oh, it's red fruit, like strawberry or other like pomegranate. You know, it's kind of like, you're like, oh, this is not the fruit flavors I would be expecting. Yeah, that is a good one. Um, yeah. You want to get into a little bit of information about Pinot Grigio in general, not specifically yes. this one. All right. So I got some notes here. I've broken this down into two sections. So the first section is Pinot Grigio in general. And the second section is specifically Italian Pinot Grigio uh, because that's what we're visiting today. So tune in next week, folks, because uh, what we'll be doing next week is Pinot Grigio from a different region. And I'll be doing uh, a breakdown of Pinot Grigio, what to expect from that region. Um, so general notes, uh, Pinot Grigio or Pinot Gris or Gru, Grau. Okay, hang on. This is funny because uh, uh, other Jake, who I talked to in a lot of the other chats uh, from uh, Arkansas, he uh, he he said, "Hey, can I ask you a question about your show?" And I said, "Sure." And he's like, "Do you try to pronounce these before the show starts?" And I said, "No, we tried it once, and it still didn't work. So I just don't try anymore." I, know, but, I, think, um, I think we also had, had like <laughs> a glass or two. Before. That's true. It's like, oh, this is worse. So it's so this this particular grape is known as Grau Burgunder in some places. So based on that name, where would you think that's where that's known? I <laughs> Grau Bunger. I would assume in a German area. Yeah. So Germany and Austria usually call yeah. it Grau uh, Grau Burgunder. And well, it, it something to also look at like at Kroger to see if any are labeled that way. That would be actually, that'd be really cool. Yeah. So we'll check that out. Let's make a note to check that out. Hang on. I'll write it down. Uh, check, check out Graubunger. Check out. Okay. So, um, so anyways, this grape is used to make the white wine, Pinot Grigio or Pinot Gris or, uh, Graubunger. These are all things that they call this. There's actually a couple of other names, but I didn't, I didn't write them down because they're yeah. much smaller. This These are the three main names. So many names. It's yeah. so interesting. It, it really is. It does have a, it has a pretty complex history too. So this is actually, what's interesting about this is genetically, this is almost indistinguishable from Pinot Noir. Mm -hmm. And um, it is a, it's a clone mutant of Pinot Noir. And, but when they, when they do DNA tests on it, they can tell the difference, but it's very, 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 very close to Pinot Noir. There's also Pinot Blanc, which is a, uh, a sibling of this, which is also a mutant clone of Pinot Noir. And I find this particularly interesting because we talked about this when we did our two episodes of Pinot Noir, which we may do an, an, a third one about Chilean Pinot Noir because I've actually been uh, pleasantly, pleasantly surprised by both really cheap uh, Chilean Pinot Noirs that I've had. Yeah, and, and if, we, if also, you can track them down, I think we should do that. We also need to get the Cab Franc from that um, Argentinian brand. 
Yeah, yeah, that'll be that'll be a really cool yeah, one to do too. I've got, I've got I've got notes on all of this, so uh, people who listen for a long time will will be coming back to these things. But anyways, this is a mutant clone <laughs> of Pinot Noir. <laughs> Sorry, yeah, right. That that's one of the cool things about wine in general is that there's just so much to talk about mm-hmm. when it comes to these. Is because it's I mean viticulture in general is super interesting, but then there's just there's history involved. There's all of these other things that that you can go down food pairings clones, um, mutations, all that sort of stuff. But anyways, so this is, this is a pink skin mutation. Mm -hmm. So, uh, not something I actually would have expected just by looking at it, but yeah, this comes from a pink skin, skinned grape and, uh, it's a white wine. So they press it and pull it off the skins to ferment, but they, uh, that is part of uh, this mutation is that it's not a dark one like Pinot Noir. It's a pink skinned, uh, Pinot Blanc is actually a white skin, but it's also a white mutation of Pinot Noir. Uh, so uh, Pinot Gris or Pinot Grigio uh, is originally from Burgundy, France, hence the German name, uh, Grau Burgunder, because it does have that Burgundy root in it. Uh, so, And this was widely planted in Burgundy for a very long time. This is a very popular white grape in Burgundy uh, up until the 18th and 19th century when they took a lot of it out because um, the the old versions of this, the old clones, were inconsistent in production from year to year, and they were very, very fickle. So some years they would produce a lot, some years they would produce none, and some years you had to pick them early, but it was hard to tell when you had to pick them. So uh, the people who were in charge of uh, Burgundy at the time just said, "Yeah, let's get rid of this. We're not going to we're not going to use this grape anymore," uh, and they tore a lot of them out. So uh, it's been known since the Middle Ages. They they have recordings of it from. Uh, all pla- all different places in Europe, but uh, the 1300s, they were talking about it in Switzerland. Uh, around that time, also Burgundy, and uh, it was moving into Germany and Austria uh, and what is now Northern Italy uh, around the same time. Uh, in Germany, after they pulled it out in the 18th and 19th century, when they pu- started pulling it out of a lot of places, it, they were starting to do that in Germany too, but uh, the German viticulturists came up with a new clone that had uh, much more consistent yields and uh, higher yields. And that became what we kind of experience now. There, there are some clonal varieties off of that, but uh, that's basically what we're drinking nowadays is the Germans came up with this. They decided uh, this is not efficient enough. Let's apply some German engineering. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and they produced uh, what we now experience as Pinot Grigio. And uh, it became widely popular in Northern Italy, which was on and off occupied by Germans and Austrians uh, and, uh, you know, Italians, of course. And so that is what is mostly the, the new Pinot Grigio and why it's so popular in Italy. And that's why we call it typically Pinot Grigio or Pinot Gris. Uh, we don't usually call it by the German name because when you think Pinot Grigio, you typically think Italy. You don't think the people who bothered to save it. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Just like people, which is so funny to me because there are a lot of examples of this when we go through wine where, and it may be, it may be related to climate change, you know, like people, like not necessarily what we talk about is climate change now, but climate change in Europe over time mm-hmm. is Germany was so invested and Austria too, so invested in, in viticulture for a very long time. Yeah. And they still are. They still produce. They still produce. Uh, actually, one of your favorites, Riesling, uh, mm-hmm. and and uh, uh, Blaufrankisch and Gruner Veltliner and um, 
there's others too that that I, I'm I'm, dr- I'm blanking on right now. They do still yeah, produce you, you a may lot be of pronouncing it right, but Gewurztraminer is that Gewurztraminer? Yeah. Did I say that or well, what you did said I say? A different one that I can't manage to reproduce at the moment, oh. and I couldn't tell if like sometimes you end up knowing the name of things much better than I do. And I didn't <laughs> right. realize it. So that's where like, I think, I, I think maybe I said Gewurztraminer. No, uh, he said, uh, Blau Frankish is one and, yeah. um, uh, Gruner Veltliner is a different that's, one. That's the one. Yes. Oh yeah. So Gruner Veltliner is also a white, lo- white wine, I believe mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I, I might be getting this mixed up, but, uh, also a very, very delicious, uh, I think it's mostly Austrian, but I think they do it in, in Germany as well. Mm-hmm. Um, they they actually do a lot of real, that. That should be one of our series, but that's a little bit more difficult to get. And since we're trying to do what's available at your grocery store, uh, at least series, yeah, yeah. For right now, it's it's kind of hard to get a lot of these other varietals. And but I do really like the uh, German varietals. They they do really interesting wines there, and um, I think that. There's a lot of, I was saying they do. And and like a lot of the German ones, like even with Germany, like you can still get them pretty, it's like, they're not super expensive. No. Yeah. They're they're usually very affordable. Uh, Sometimes it's a little bit difficult to, to discern what you're getting. Like one of the things that kind of blocked me from getting Riesling for a long time is I couldn't tell what was sweet and dry because they're not always labeled that way. Yeah. Uh, Even though there's like a super big, uh, scale and you know as we've talked about right yeah yeah and um but you know they do still do pinot grigio in germany and i think that might be a fun one to do at some point it won't be part of our series because i don't think they'll have it in kroger but they may uh so uh we'll get into that later but let's go ahead and get into what to expect from italian pinot grigio so in italy you're you're mostly going to get wines that are labeled pinot grigio uh, so the characteristic of Pinot Grigio in Italy is that they're dry um, with uh, relatively high acidity. So you are going to get a varying amount of acidity on these, but typically it is that's what they're going for in Italy is, is this higher level of acidity. Uh, and the way they achieve that is they pick them very young. So a lot of times they pick them before they've developed any pigment in the skins of the grape. Uh, so typical flavors and aromas that you're going to get from Italian Pinot Grigio is uh, lemons, lime, uh, green apple, and apple blossom. Uh, that's aromas and flavors are usually going to be around that. Usually you'll get a little more apple blossom on the nose, but apples in the in the taste, uh, the flavor. So uh, in Italy, the grape. Oh, I, I mentioned this earlier. In Italy, the grapes are harvested early so that the acidity is preserved because that's what they're after. If it gets too hot, the uh, that kind of crisp sour apple flavor that is mm-hmm. is present in Pinot Grigio a lot that kind of mutes, and you end up getting more tropical flavors, and that's not the goal of of Italian Pinot Grigio. So they consider that kind of a fault, not not really necessarily a fault, but it's not what their goal is, and so it, people don't really typically want that. Um, also, if it gets too hot, as I as I uh, said earlier, it tends to turn red and that, well, it turns that pink color, which is like, mm-hmm. it's a lighter color than Pinot Noir. It starts getting that light. And so you end up getting a pinky wine, which makes it look like a rosé, but it's not a rosé. And so they, <laughs> they're trying to, they're trying to avoid that as well. Mm-hmm. Um, 
So uh, it also tends to be, oh, I was talking about that. So typically the color that they're after is clear, almost like water. So they, they uh, a little bit of green, a little bit of yellow is okay, but they, they try to get it very, very clear. That's, that's part of its presentation. Uh, the fermentation is typically in stainless steel tanks. They don't want to impart any oak to this or any additional flavors usually because that gives it a heavy, um, a heavy mouthfeel. It mm-hmm. makes it a heavier wine. And what they're trying to present to you is very, very light-bodied, extremely simple, and clean. And which when I read this description, because I had already had a glass of this and when I made my notes on this, when I read the description, I was like, okay, if that's what they're after. They hit it on uh, the head. They did. Yeah, like this is very close to what they're describing. So yeah, they did really hit it on the head where it's it is incredibly simple. It's not complicated. It is clean for sure. And and I guess, you know, I'll probably finish this bottle tonight. So we'll know tomorrow uh, by my, based off of my hangover, how clean it is. But um, <laughs> although, although lately I, I, you know, I even, I, you know how I always complain about like hangovers from Texas wine. Mm-hmm. I had, a, I had like a bottle of Texas wine the other day, zero hangover the next day. Nice. And then. I don't know if that's nice. <laughs> I'm a little worried about my alcohol consumption, but I have cut out. I have cut out like all drinking on weekdays, other than Friday. So Friday, Saturday, Sunday, I usually drink, and then um, all the other weekdays I don't. But like when I when I had like a full bottle of like a, a heavy Texas Tempranillo, and then or no, it was a Malbec because uh, Rowdy sent me uh, a Malbec because I I joined his yeah. uh, wine club. I drank the entire Malbec. It was so good, and then. <laughs> And and I remember finishing the bottle and going like I'm not going to feel good tomorrow. I woke up at like my normal time, seven thirty, and was like, "This is awesome. I feel fine." Good. And but I and it wasn't. It was it was weird. But um, good because you didn't feel bad. Not yeah, good, good necessarily. Yeah. <laughs> like, I'm not like commending your choice. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, actually, I finished everything he sent me and. If you guys are in Lubbock area, go over to Bolin Vineyards because his wine is just really exceptional. He's got good wine. We're, we should have him on again at text some point. Me the, uh, text me the um, spelling of that because okay. somebody I, I deal with at work is in Lubbock, and she's a big into wine. So I want to see yeah. if she went out to Bolin. I, she- his, well, it's award-winning too. Um, so, Well, it was award-winning before he was Bolin Vineyards when it was um, Trilogy Cellars. Yeah. So well, she, uh, she suggested Iona, Iano. Um, that's pretty uh, – or Iano. Um, yeah. Well, and you Cap- and I always have a hard time pronouncing that. Yeah. And then uh, – And then what was the other one? Caprock. Caprock is really good actually. I've yeah. had Caprock. Yeah, that, that one's very good too. Um, I'll, I'll text it to you and then and then you can you can send it to her and say that we know, we know this guy because uh, – He's he's a, he's a super cool dude, and his wine's very good. But that aside, uh, you know what they always say is what grows together goes together. And so uh, what they always suggest with Italian Pinot Grigio is northern Italian fare. Uh, mm-hmm. And I – had a page picked up, <laughs> but I didn't. I, I didn't leave it open. But from my understanding, is is northern Italian food tends to be heavier because it is colder up there. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it does tend to be more gravy based food, more cheese based food. Which you're not a huge fan of cheese, but their food. But it, it makes sense to what you were commenting on earlier 
which was that the acidity kind of cuts through that fattiness of cheese. Mm -hmm. And they do also have a lot of mushroom gravy based dishes where it's like, um, what's the, what's those like little tiny Italian noodles? Plenta? Is that, is that right? Are you thinking like the potato ones? They're like little tiny noodles. Uh, I think they have them. I think it's Northern Italy. They have these like very tiny noodles and then you get them in like a, like a braised mushroom sauce Hmm. I, I don't, I'm not sure what I'm thinking of, but uh, that was one of the things they recommended was like this kind of like a mushroom sauce based dish, but not with meat necessarily with, mm-hmm. with more uh, pasta and mushrooms and a lot of like Italian uh, parsley. Uh, they, they've got also a lot of, uh, like I said, cheese based dishes like fondue and things like that, which we really think of more of Northern European food, but this part of Italy transitioned so much between these other nations yeah, and stuff. Like Austria for a long time too. Yeah, exactly. It was part of Austria, but they also have uh, a lot of cheese based and vegetable based ravioli. Um, one of the things they were talking about in the article I read was that the ravioli was filled with um, pumpkin, which is American, but it's apparently like squ- a squash and pump, like squash, like pumpkin uh, and other types of squash like that filled ravioli have you ever had ravioli filled with squash uh not that i remember but like that's me, not me, me neither but i yeah that sounds awesome to me <laughs> um, um yeah it depends on the squash and it depends on how they seasoned it because like normally i would expect yeah. it would maybe like squash and cheese which i'm not obviously a huge fan of the idea of but okay otherwise yeah well it's it, it's apparently just a squash filling and they say either pumpkin, uh, so it's like pumpkin ravioli. So it's, uh, yeah, it sounds really good. But I, I, I wonder what they season pumpkin with because we always season it with like nutmeg and cinnamon, and yeah. in America. But uh, I mean, that's, and it's that's if you're making like a pie because like it, right, yeah, there are other seasonings for like pumpkin because you could do like right. a spicy pumpkin. But they were also saying, um, qua- oh, it is polenta quail with polenta. Do you like quail? I have not had it, but I've I, I've only had it a couple of times. They also said um, veal knuckle. Hmm. I've never had that either. I'm not. Like, a, they, they, had, they had a lot of really interesting. Yeah, I'm not a big veal dishes. fan. Really? Okay, so I, I like veal, but I but you know we almost exclusively whenever we eat veal, it's almost always tartare. Well, that's the thing. It's like it, it's kind of one of those. Like, I like the taste of veal. Okay. I just don't like what veal represent, like what veal yeah, yeah. is. So, like, yeah, to me, I, like, I see what you're saying. You know, like, I'm not going to condemn somebody necessarily for eating it, but I'm mm-hmm. personally not going to go track it down. Like, yeah, that makes sense. And like actually, now really that like, now that you're mentioning it, I'm pretty sure that I don't eat veal tartare. I'm pretty sure it's venison tartare. Yeah. <laughs> I, I don't is, know. Is, you- veal, is veal deer or is venison deer? Venison is deer. Okay, then I'm thinking venison tartare. Huh. I don't think we actually eat a whole bunch of veal. Um, veal not... is baby cow. Yes. And okay. It's... Yeah, we don't we don't eat a whole lot of that. Although I've, uh, I believe that you and I have eaten that veal, um, that German meal. It's it's like veal and it's like and then it's like breaded and then Wiener uh, schnitzel. Yeah, schnitzel. That's it. Yeah, schnitzel. Well, it's Wiener schnitzel specifically. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I, that's actually I like that a lot. 
but yeah, well, yeah. yeah. I mean, a lot of that, like most of that these days, um, like you have the option of specifically getting it okay, as yeah. veal, like or not. And like to me, it's just as good not veal. So okay, interesting. Yeah, yeah. Polenta is actually like a boiled cornmeal. Oh, really? Okay, I thought it was the noodles. Well, that's I thought they the, were like really tiny noodles. Maybe like I might be spelling it incorrectly, but no, no, no I think you are. You are. I think I'm thinking of a different type of noodle. Yet again, another. Um, uh, you know, what's uh, orzo? Is orzo an is orzo a noodle? Orzo. <laughs> to me, that's like the yeah. Orzo is a type of noodle. Or it's I think like that's what rice. I'm thinking of. Orzo. It is pasta. Yeah, that's what I'm thinking of. Is orzo. It's Italian. We eat orzo barley. too. Yeah, I, I make this pretty good tilapia with orzo. Hmm. It's like it's like uh, it's like mushrooms, scallion, and parmesan with tilapia. Hey, you know, until you said par- <laughs> parmesan. Yeah, yeah, I know. Yeah, you're not a cheese guy. Yeah. Well, like depending on how much parmesan you're putting in there, that actually might not be that like yeah. outside of my my eating range. You know, it's pretty good. It, it, I, when you come, you know, I, I've I've since I've moved out here, I've grown as a cook. Mm-hmm. I think uh, we've been making a lot of stuff. I, th- I sent you that picture that I'm going to make that holidays. Um, mm-hmm. That's like going to be like my masterpiece, hopefully for Ukrainian Christmas. <laughs> holidays. It's set. Man, that actually would be an excellent episode for us to do. Is trying to pair holidays with something because it's such a weird dish. Yeah. Well. Um, um, so. Like for lunch, I'm trying to get into eating carnivore. Okay, cool. Um, yeah, to just kind of reset for certain things. But yeah, like that would be an interesting thing to try to pair. So for people who don't know, holiday is a meat, it's like jelly yeah. kind of thing, and it's like it's not like you jelly the meat; it's meat set in like a gelatin. Well, okay, so yeah, so it. That's what it is, but it's it's really interesting because the pro- like I've been looking at the process of how to make it. So um, you're not like it's not like a packet of gelatin. It's mm-hmm. you have to cook the meat in a certain way so it produces its own gelatin. Yeah, and uh, which I was vaguely familiar with. That's where gelatin came from. Mm-hmm. But um, so this is a whole process, and apparently, like I was reading about it, and Victoria was telling me. It's not the same if you just try to put it in gelatin. So yeah. it's really it's like it's like gelatin soup almost. So yeah. or or maybe gelatin stew. So you're making like this gelatin that is got vegetables and meat suspended in it, but it's also not a fruity gelatin or a flavorless gelatin. It's a savory gelatin. Yeah. So this is uh, traditionally called like aspic. So A S P I C. What was funny is when I was looking up how to make it, I I said, hey, Victoria, did we call this – is this also called aspic? And she's like, I've never heard that in my life. Um, So apparently other parts of Eastern Europe call it aspic, and in Ukraine it's holodiets. And um, the the wiki has it as the aspics or however. Yeah. It is such a interesting dish, and when she brought it to me the first time, I was like, "I don't want to, I don't want to eat that. That's weird." <laughs> and um, she's like, "Oh, just try it, just try it." She's like, "You got to eat it with horseradish," and I don't like horseradish, so um, she gave me one one piece of it. And I was like, "Ugh, this is gross." And um, then she was like, "You know what? You could 
other some people eat it with mustard. Maybe you would like it with spicy mustard or with just yellow mustard. And I tried it with that and I was like, oh my gosh, this is like the best mustard delivery system on the planet. It, like the the combination is is amazing. And um and now like I'm obsessed with it. And none of the Russian stores around here make it. Uh she brought it to me. Re- do you remember when I went to that big wine conference in DC? Mm-hmm. She brought it to me from New York City to DC. Huh. Um, because she was, she was up in New York before we went to that wine thing. And then we met in DC and then flew back together here. And, um, she brought me, she was like, you'll love this. And that was when like, she was like, oh, eat it with the spicy horseradish. And I was like, this is disgusting. And then, then she put on the spicy mustard and it was like the greatest thing I'd ever had. <laughs> um, and so then, like ever since I've, we've been asking the Russian store that we go to, do you guys have it? And then we went and asked the other one, they don't make it either. Cause it takes so long to make. Yeah. And apparently it's not. It's popular, but it's it's one of those things where they, like I guess the, the return on investment is not high enough, so they just don't make it. Yeah, so I was gonna, I figured I'll make it for Ukrainian Christmas this year. And to me, this seems like a very, like, um, like, uh, like Eastern European Jewish, like the yeah yeah a little bit, but like the I mean and maybe like. The wiki is just not saying it, but like to me, it feels like um, goodness gracious, I cannot come up with the. It's like the Jewish where they they don't speak Hebrew. It's the other one, like the, the Yiddish, like yeah, Ashkenazi. Yeah, it's like a Yiddish dish yeah. to me. Yeah, like, yeah. This is the, something about it just screams like Yiddish, and maybe it's yeah. gefilte fish. It just makes me. Think <laughs> right. of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah. like, yeah. So and that's I, I, I don't I don't we got off on that long tangent. <laughs> yeah, I'm not really sure. Um, I mean, but yeah, that's close. So, but let's let's kind of go back to Pinot yeah. Grigio real and and like close that out. I have one short article to do before everything's done. I think it sure. is uh, interesting. But let's go ahead. Any final thoughts on Italian Pinot Grigio? Uh, let's let's revisit in our fourth episode. But we're gonna do two episodes of other regions. Or maybe mm-hmm. maybe if we find something really interesting, maybe we'll do three episodes of other regions and well, then we revisit can, Italy. If we can find a French, so I th- I kind of think feel like we need to do four separate ones um, before going back to Italy. So like I you know I know where our next one is. I'd like to yeah. s- try to get a French one to see the difference. Like especially if we could get one from Burgundy, but you know we know that would that be really be, cool. Might be a little that more. Might be, yeah, that might be difficult with Kroger yeah. because that's part of the theme, but. Uh, just then, sort of re- to restate it, though, is like this is this is we're trying to source these at Kroger right now because Kroger's available to you and me, and mm-hmm. also because Kroger is available to a lot of our listeners, and it's also going to have a selection that is probably similar to most grocery stores. Yeah, and and I think that's a good uh, a good way to sort of you you know one of the things that, like I I I think about our show a lot and. That's kind of what I was thinking. Is like, you know what? I do so much last bottle stuff, which by the way, you can save some money if you go over to our uh, website, tastinganarchy.com and uh, sign up for last bottle using our link and on, you'll get $10 off on your first thing and it'll give us a nice kick, kickback. So that helps me out. Uh, so far, I don't think you've gotten anything other than what I brought to Childeberg from yep. last bottle. <laughs> uh, but um, last bottle while it is accessible for people who probably want to buy wine, uh, a little bit higher caliber maybe of wine, 
um, it's not really the best for people who just kind of think about it when they're at the grocery store. Yeah, exactly. It's, this is one of those ones where we are, you know, maybe this, this decision will flop on its face, but to us, it's at least a fun and interesting thing to try. So, yeah, I think so. And and I've, I've wanted to start since we did this series on wine grapes, I've had a really good time doing the research for it. And it's fun to, for you and I to like talk about each grape. And it's also, I always like the episodes the best where you and I are drinking the same wine. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that this is a fun for a fun way for us to share it because Kroger is available to both of us and it has basically the same selection everywhere. You went so, like super staticky there on me, but I know it won't come out in the audio, so that's good. Oh, okay. <laughs> well, <laughs> yeah. Uh, so yeah, so I, I like that. So anyways, we'll go ahead and, and wrap up the Pinot Grigio talk and let's go ahead and hear a message from our sponsor whose book I have been cooking out of lately and after this advertisement i'll talk about the most recent thing i made from uh the culinary libertarian's new book which is i think called cooking for comfort um so here is his ad hi folks dan reed here the host of the culinary libertarian podcast during the show's tenure i've spoken to celebrated authors of baking and economics i've chatted with bakers and chefs and libertarians alike to introduce you to people provide a mix of ideas to build your skills in the kitchen, as well as tempt your appetite toward liberty. Type culinarylibertarian.com slash podcasts into your browser search bar and subscribe on your favorite podcatcher. I look forward to hearing from you. And that was a Culinary Libertarian. The last dish that I cooked from the Culinary Libertarian's cookbook was beef stroganoff, uh, which was really good. And it kind of, um, I guess made up maybe three days worth of meals. Cause I cooked a, I, I cooked a double recipe of it and, um, I eat a lot of beef and Victoria liked it a lot. I think that maybe the sour cream was a little too heavy for her, but no, for right. me it was perfect. Cause you know, the stroganoff's got that little sour creamy sourness in it, Ugh. but what's <laughs> good. I'm not a big sour cream fan as you know. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, well, the, the amount of dairy I eat is probably repulsive to you. Uh-huh. <laughs> that's the thing. But, like, I, you know, for a couple of weeks there, I thought I was like becoming lactose intolerant. So, you know, like for me, yes, it, it's just not, I, I can't do that much dairy. So, yeah. And, and I eat like a insane amount of dairy. It's probably not very good, but um, I mean, like most, most like meat and cheese, well, cheese is dairy, but a lot of times, like I'll, if I'm eating just like pieces of cheese, I'll put sour cream on it because I like both. So I'm just like, well, I'll just like, let me get like a little, I'll just open up one of these sour cream thing. And we get the, uh, well, this is probably even grosser for you. We get the the farmer's sour cream at the Russian store, which is like chunky, and <laughs> like, like I a love train wreck. Just <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I'll just like plop. I'll just plop. I'm like a on a piece of Russian cheese. Just plop some of this like chunky sour cream and eat it. <laughs> like it, it for you is like it's probably the most disgusting thing ever. But for me, it's like oh, this is a great snack. I just love how like how far down the rabbit hole of like Russian food. (laughs) (laughs) And I feel like I'm like, well, and you know, what's funny is that cause you, you mentioned it as being like a Ashkenazi type thing or like a Yiddish thing. 
my, you know, my grandfather was uh, German and he ate a lot of this sort of stuff. Well, and your grandfather was Jewish, wasn't he? Yeah. Ju- Jewish and German. Yeah. So, but, uh, well, Czech, I guess, but also like through like research and stuff we've been doing is actually, he was born in Ukraine mm-hmm. and, um, and then was in Hungary and then in Czechoslovakia and then in Austria or then in Germany, then in Austria, then back in Czechoslovakia, then into the United States. But, um, yeah, like so through life. What's that? Yeah, one of my great disappointments is not having gotten to meet him. Like, what is, what the great one of the, one of the, yeah yeah exactly like what greatest human being like? Now, granted, he died when I was I think twelve, so uh, a lot of this I'm sure is just like me building him up, but uh, just one of the greatest people ever. I mean, like just, just having lived in all of those places. Before yeah. the war, yeah, before the war, yeah. I mean, his his father was a cantor, and so he moved a lot to do. Um, so, for people who don't know, a cantor is a uh, like a religious singer. He's, he's a rabbi, but he also but he does it through music, and mm-hmm. um, and so. But he was high in demand. Like we have we have newspaper articles of the first time they came to America, where like there's advertisements in the newspaper about this famous cantor coming to do the service. And uh, it's it's pretty interesting. So that's why they moved around a lot. But um, I think that probably my my appreciation of these types of foods are is probably from my grandfather. I, whether it's genetic or just learned, because he did eat a lot of like weird stuff, and so that kind of gave me an appreciation. I think for like the what like if if you were to like introduce this to like most Americans who grew up on McDonald's or whatever, they'd be like, Oh, gross. You, you want to eat like, although I won't eat any fish, but like he used to eat jelly fish eyes all the time. And like, which to me is disgusting still, but where it, would you get those things? He made it. He he would just make it. He would like, whenever like fish was made, which my mom wouldn't cook fish because she didn't like the way it smelled, but my grandmother would sometimes. And anytime that he had fish, um, he would like, pick out the eyes and like he would have like these big jars of fish eyes. Now part of this too is it could be me conflating memories because he also called tapioca fish eye pudding. Um, so he would, and he would tell us that he was eating fish eyes whenever he was eating tapioca and mm-hmm. we'd always be like, Oh gross. But like, but he also from my remembrance is that whenever we had fish around the house, he would eat the eyes. That was his favorite part, but he would also eat like the jellied fish eyes in a can. You got to ask and your mom about this. Like you should, I should yeah. After the show. I'll, I'll message her. I'll message her. But yeah, like, so I think I got a lot of, I got a lot of this like appreciation from that. And when my mom came and visited us, like we did like a big, you know, Ukrainian smorgasbord of like different interesting things, which is like 90% pickled. And she was like, this is exactly what grandpa Bob used to eat or, or her dad. Uh, she just said dad, but like my grandfather, my grandpa Bob, uh, would eat like all of the, like just ungodly amounts of like pickled items and like weird fermented things and stuff like that. So um, that's, you know, we, I eat a lot of that. It's just, it's good snack food too, because it's a lot of it's easy because it's in the cans. So you can just get a small helping of it and then, re- and then just seal it back up and um, totally, totally off topic. So <laughs> let's, uh, so, Here's Check out uh, Culinary Libertarian's book, a cookbook, which I believe is Cooking for Comfort, and um, it's on Amazon. And I'll put a, I'll, I'll go ahead and put a sh- uh, link to it in the show notes page. Uh, really good book. We made two things from it: ribs and stroganoff, and both of them were great. 
Man, we got called out for not having an affiliate link. <laughs> it's true. We don't have an affiliate link. And I, and I think I remember that call out. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So I'll, uh, I guess we'll, we'll set up an Amazon affiliate link and put, and put a link to it because it's a great book. Rollo ordered it and he's going to make some stuff out of it too. So it, it, what's really cool about this book is it teaches specific concepts. So the stroganoff concept was how to properly caramelize onions. Hmm. And, um, which is actually an interesting process. It's not difficult, but it's, um, like a lot of times, like I'll read a recipe and it'll be like, do this to the onions and bring them to this temperature and like make them shimmer or whatever. And I'm like, what does shimmer mean? Whatever. Make them hot, move on. But like then the, the, the process of caramelizing is, um, it's, it's a different process and it really does change the flavor of the food you're making. So, mm-hmm. uh, and the ribs that we made was about like, I, I think I could be recalling this wrong, but like the concept was making like a, a crust on it so that you have this sort of like really juicy interior. And then this kind of like crispy crush, like crust with like the sweetness and stuff on the outside. Um, and it was, and it was very smoky, but done in the oven. So it's very accessible. All, all of the stuff that he does is like, you can do it really easily at home with very basic instruments. And, um, really, really everything we've made so far is really good. Those are the two items that I've made so far. And uh, we've got a couple of others on the list. We went to the Russian store yesterday, so we probably won't make anything for a couple of days because we'll be too busy eating fermented cheeses and meat. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> well, uh, but uh, I think that runs us out of time on uh, that's true. The fermented food talk because you know we ferment or do a bunch of different stuff like that. So we're tasting anarchy. You can find us at tastinganarchy.com, tasting anarchy on Twitter, Childerberg on Twitter, Childerberg.com. Um, Childerberg is our annual in Texas event at the Mule Shoe, Mule Shoe Bend Recreational Area in late May of 2021. Yes. This is the 29th through the 31st. Yeah. yeah. yeah 29th through the 31st. Uh, we'll be out there. We're going to be having fun. People show up on the 28th as usual, I'm sure. And I'm sure somebody's going to stay through the first, um, out there doing Probably. whatever. Um, so come out and see us. We'll go to childerberg.com, sign up for the newsletter. We'll be better about putting it out. We should have some new designs, hopefully in the next month or two, if we think about it and do what we're supposed to do. <laughs> All right. So I, I do, I have two other plugs to do. Yeah. Um, because this, I was on two podcasts recently, um, talking about Childeberg, but also talking about tasting anarchy. So, break the rules. Spike Cohen. What's that? Spike Cohen. That's right. Yep, I did. I did actually. I did have an opportunity to talk to Spike Cohen. 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 On uh, Break the Rules podcast, and um, I was on the Break the Rules podcast a little bit earlier. So there was two topics. One was on libertarianism. The other one was um, uh, like a free form conversation where I represented libertarianism. And um, so we can check. You can check that out. Uh, and then uh, I will be on the. Probably by the time this comes out, it will be released. Uh, I'll be on the Unshackled Liberty podcast to talk about Childeberg. Um, I believe the recording is on the 10th, but they probably will release it a couple of days later. So October 10th, I'll be recording. So by the time this comes out, because I do have a couple of other episodes in the queue, uh, I may have already been on that podcast. 
And uh, also check out my new podcast, The Californian in Exile. I only have a couple of episodes out, but um, I plan on having Mason's wife on that mm-hmm. in the near future. I've also made uh, contact with somebody who's part of the Jefferson movement in Northern California. So if you didn't know it, uh, California has been trying to split into two states for a very long time, uh, <laughs> probably 100 years almost at this point. And um, yeah, just so I got been a state. That's right. Yeah. Pro- yeah, probably. <laughs> and, um, I've got some other guests who, who are going to come on and, and just talk about, uh, being from California and why they're not there or why they're leaving. And, uh, it's a, it's a good show. California is a state that I love, but has a lot of problems and is kind of preventing me from moving back. Uh, I also have a new project, project <laughs> number, ungodly amounts uh <laughs> three thousand squared <laughs> <laughs> right but it's 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 related to childerberg also i'm going to be doing the childerberg town uh intentional living podcast or well probably a live stream once a month uh i'll be having people on that who to talk about intentional living and um ways that you can kind of prepare to break away just in case things don't go too well i think i think we all know that we're living in very interesting times and um, it might be a good idea to start building a community either where you live now or to move to a place where uh, a community exists that you can become a part of. So that's what we're going to be talking about on the Chillerberg Town live stream, uh, which will be on YouTube if you want to see my beautiful face. I'm sure Mason will probably be able to chime in once in a while on that as well. Mm-hmm. Um, all right. I think that's all of the stuff that I have to plug. I've got a lot of projects, but I think uh, I think that's it. Yeah. Stay free, everybody. Stay free.